0: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. You know, there's something larger at play here, which is that just like every leader wants to take, you know, the glory of success, you have to be willing to admit when you've made a mistake. And we're living through this time period, and especially with this president, where the whole game is don't ever admit that you're wrong. Don't ever seem fallible. Part of being a strong leader and of getting stronger and growing as a leader is being able to recognize when you've made a mistake and to take
1: appropriate action. That's Julian Castro. He was the mayor of San Antonio, Texas, before going on to serve as the youngest member of President Obama's cabinet. You may recognize his voice from the Democratic primary debate stage. Castro made waves on the first debate night when the topic turned to immigration, specifically a once obscure statute in Title Eight of the United States Code, Section 1325. We get into all of that, plus why he's still taking Spanish lessons. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. You can tell a lot about somebody by the company they keep, and also by the company they don't keep. That's why I put this right in my Twitter bio. Banned by Putin, fired by Trump. And now we put it on a t-shirt. To get yours, head to shop.cafe.com for your very own Banned by Putin Fired by Trump t shirt and even more stay tuned merchandise. That's shop.cafe.com. This question comes from Twitter user Rick Wiedemann. Apologies if that's not how you pronounce your last name. He writes A federal judge in New York ruled that it was a violation of the First Amendment for President Trump to block Twitter followers. Can he still mute them? Hashtag AskPreet. That's a really clever question, a good one. So my understanding of the opinion is that because President Trump who is the leader of the country and a public official, makes many official pronouncements, not just through the ordinary course of press releases from the White House and other official means, he uses his Twitter account. In fact, just recently, as, we, as we've as we talked about, Donald Trump used his Twitter account to say that he was insisting on a citizenship question being added to the census. So a lot of important pronouncements that citizens may want to hear about occur through the president's Twitter account. And when he blocks someone, that means that citizens of the country are not able to see those official pronouncements, and that's a violation. With respect to the question of whether he can mute them, I presume he can, because that's communication that goes in the other direction. I don't know any basis for forcing the president to listen to any particular communication made by a citizen, even though citizens should not be blocked from hearing communications by the president. By the way, while we're on the subject of blocking and muting, uh, you're all familiar with my love-hate relationship with Twitter. I have accelerated my blocking and muting recently. You may have noticed I'm in a bit of a better mood. This very specific and narrow question comes from Twitter user Stephanie Strait, who asks, Hey, at Preet Bharara, I had never heard of hashtag Jeffrey Epstein before this week. Please explain all of the things. <laughs> hashtag ask Preet. As you may have heard in the sample we made available from the Cafe Insider podcast with Ann Milgram, the entire conversation that goes about 30 minutes between me and Ann, which is available at cafe.com slash insider. We did kind of explain all the things that had occurred to us, but it has been brought to my attention that there's a call about the Epstein case from a listener, and maybe we didn't explain all the things. Hi, Preet. This is Victoria calling from Seattle, and um, I have a question about the Epstein case, something that I don't understand in his deal, how he can strike a plea just pleading guilty to prostitution or solicitation for a prostitute, but then you also, in that same deal, are paying restitution to your victim. So, I mean, it seems so contradictory, and I don't understand how the law makes room for those things to live concurrently. I guess I wish you could explain that to me a little bit. Um, thank you so much. Love your show. Loved when you came to Seattle, and uh, we'll keep listening. Bye. So thanks for your great question, Victoria. And by the way, I enjoyed my visit to Seattle. Also, really enthusiastic crowd. So this is one thing that Anne and I did not talk about, and you raise a good point. There are so many things that are inexplicable and seemingly contradictory with respect to the non-prosecution agreement that was reached back in 2007 in Florida. Uh, and I think you're right. It does not make sense in connection with logic that you can plead guilty for solicitation of prostitution and then also pay restitution to victims. It seems like a lot of people are saying that in the other direction, that the characterization of underage girls as prostitutes is offensive as well. So in either direction, the idea that they were actual victims who then are characterized as prostitutes, or there's the characterization of the crime as prostitution, and yet payment to victims with restitution doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and goes further, I think, to the point that we should get more answers from both the current labor secretary, Alex Acosta, and others about the process and the thinking and the procedure. I know it's being looked at internally at the Justice Department, but there are a lot of things that are still unexplained that hopefully we'll get to the bottom of. By the way, there's one more thing that Ann and I didn't get to because it occurred after we taped this week, and that is the question of whether Attorney General Bill Barr should have any kind of involvement in the Epstein case. Now, the reporting has been that with respect to the ongoing litigation down south about whether or not the non-prosecution agreement can be undone, with respect to that litigation, Bill Barr has recused himself. My understanding is on the theory that He was at the law firm where one of his partners represented Jeffrey Epstein in the past. It has also been reported that Bill Barr has chosen not to recuse himself from the current proceeding, the current charges, now pending in the Southern District of New York. Two curious things about that. One is, I don't understand the distinction. I've been trying to figure out how it can be so that you recuse in the one case and not recuse in the current case, because it remains true that a former partner of his at Kirkland and Ellis once upon a time represented Jeffrey Epstein. So I don't understand the distinction. Maybe he should not have recused himself from the first matter, but once you do, I don't understand how it's consistent with not recusing yourself from the second matter. And then the second point, the reporting as I've seen it, is that Bill Barr consulted with ethics officials and is not recusing himself from the SDNY matter. That to me doesn't answer the question of what the ethics officials at the Department of Justice actually told him. You will recall, perhaps, from his confirmation hearing that he unequivocally said he would not necessarily follow the advice and counsel and direction of ethics officials at the Justice Department, that it was his prerogative to decide whether to recuse or not recuse in any particular matter. And he was not going to abdicate, in his words, that responsibility, even though his predecessor, Jeff Sessions, did commit to following the advice, not just consulting and listening to the advice, but following the advice of ethics officials on recusal, and then obviously famously recused from the Russia investigation. So I don't know what the ethics official's advice has been, because I haven't seen that reported and haven't seen Bill Barr say anything about it. But I think there's one more important point to make here, uh, which I can say from my prior position at the Southern District, and that is whether or not the attorney general recuses or doesn't recuse from the SDNY matter, I don't see any reason why in a case like this, he should have any involvement at all. At a minimum, he shouldn't have any involvement in the day-to-day operations of the investigation or the case or charging decisions. Yes, Jeffrey Epstein is a now notoriously well-known person uh, who purports to be a billionaire, I guess, although nobody seems to be aware of how he made any of his money. But we handled cases in the Southern District all the time of greater consequence without any interference from or micromanagement from the Attorney General. Certainly, there were cases that had national significance and that affected you know, many, many, many people like the Toyota settlement and the GM settlement that involved billions of dollars in penalties. And on those matters, we consulted all the way up to the Attorney General of the United States. So this is a case that's perfectly capable of being handled internally by Jeff Berman, the current United States Attorney in the Southern District. There's no statutory requirement or that I can tell regulation or guideline of the Department of Justice that requires permission or approval for anything going on in this case from the Attorney General of the United States. And I would also think that given all the surrounding controversy uh, with respect to the Epstein case and whether there was political favoritism going on and whether there was gamesmanship going on, that a wise Attorney General, for his own purposes and his own protection and his own reputation, would want to steer clear of the case and let the capable people of the Southern District of New York handle it. And so this question of whether he's recusing himself or not is a little bit beside the point. I think he should stay out of it. This question comes from Twitter user Tongue of Wood. Interesting handle. The question is this. What is the professional ethics requirement for DOJ attorneys in the census question case, given U.S. District Court Judge Jesse Furman's refusal to allow them to step aside? Hashtag Glad you asked that question, because in a bit of a bombshell ruling on Tuesday night, July 9th, My former colleague at the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, now a judge, Jesse Furman, ruled on the request for the lawyers in the census case, the DOJ lawyers in the census case, to withdraw. There has been a lot of speculation, I think reasonable and good speculation, that having taken the position over and over and over again, that there could be no citizenship question added to the census unless the fate of that question was resolved by June 30th of this year, to now take the position that we can still add a citizenship question in light of Donald Trump's tweets saying that there should be one. The belief is that these lawyers decided they couldn't, in good faith and in good conscience, change their position completely. So the Department of Justice sought to switch them all out, essentially, and replace them with new ones. And ordinarily, people may think that you can just sort of withdraw from a case at will, and even though it's a pro forma matter for judges to approve withdrawals of counsel and substitutions of counsel, that actually has to be done by order of the court. And so Judge Furman, in this late-breaking opinion last evening wrote that he is denying the motion to substitute counsel consistent with the local rules in particular rule 1.4 of the u.s district courts of the southern and eastern districts of new york governing the withdrawal of counsel he says look it can only be done by order of a court and as he quotes the rule such an order may be granted only upon a showing by affidavit or otherwise of satisfactory reasons for withdrawal or displacement and the posture of the case and as judge Furman puts forward in his opinion Measured against these standards, defendants' motion is patently deficient. In fact, he goes on to write, defendants provide no reasons, let alone satisfactory reasons, for the substitution of counsel. My guess is the reason they didn't want to put forward reasons is it's not a pleasant thing to put forward to the court in public that a number of attorneys, because of a crisis of integrity and conscience, don't feel they can make arguments that they, just as recently as last week, disavowed. So your question about what the ethics requirements for the GOJ attorneys is an interesting one. As part of the order, Judge Furman does not say that in no way, shape, or form can these attorneys withdraw. What he does say is, I'm denying the motion today without prejudice, meaning you can renew the motion for withdrawal, which I will consider only if I get sworn, written affidavits from each lawyer explaining why he or she wants to withdraw. And the reasons have to be satisfactory. And I also have to be convinced that that it's not going to affect the timing of the litigation, which, by the way, in no small measure, has been litigated on the premise that time is of the essence, as I described a moment ago. So, with respect to this motion, and with respect to this opinion, the ethics requirements of the DOJ attorneys is to make an affidavit, if they remain insistent on withdrawing, that comports with the truth. I think it's an interesting thing. What's going to happen? And how they're going to phrase their reluctance to continue on the matter, even though these lawyers have all the experience, have all the expertise, understand the record below, understand the law, have argued the matter in multiple courts, and in this case, all the way up to the Supreme Court. What are those affidavits going to say? I await them just like you do. And let us be clear on this. I don't know for a fact if these lawyers all said as a matter of conscience that they are withdrawing or if higher-ups in the department fired them because they didn't think they were going to do a good enough job, or it could be an amalgam of the two. I can imagine a scenario, and this is all speculation, but I can imagine a scenario in which the existing lawyers on the matter huddled and tried to figure out how they were going to proceed after they thought the case was essentially over in light of the president's tweeting that he was going to be insistent on adding a citizenship question. And they huddled and maybe said, we can make these arguments, but we can't make these other arguments. And there are limits to the kinds of things we can say, given the positions we've previously taken, et cetera. And in that scrum when there seemed to be some reluctance to proceed in a particular way, that they were relieved of their duty. So I don't know if it's pure withdrawal, pure removal by superiors, or some combination of the two, but given Judge Furman's order, I guess we'll find out soon. Uh, And by the way, folks, let me just say that one of my favorite parts of doing the show is reading and answering your questions every week, but I can't get to all of them. Luckily, you can read up on all these issues at greater length in our free weekly newsletter, Cafe Brief. That's available at cafe.com slash brief. Again, you can sign up at cafe.com slash brief. My guest this week is Julian Castro. He's the only Latino candidate in the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. Castro's slightly younger twin brother, Representative Joaquin Castro, is another Texas Democrat who recently led the Congressional Hispanic Caucus on a trip to inspect the conditions of a detention center at the border. Julian is the only Castro and one of the few Democratic candidates with executive branch experience. He was President Obama's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Just a couple of weeks ago, Castro was a breakout star of Democratic Debate Night One. We discussed the merits of executive versus legislative experience, how real leaders own up to their mistakes, and why affirmative action could be in part the reason why he's where he is today. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported Away Away offers high-quality luggage at a much lower price by cutting out the middleman and going directly to you. Choose from nine colors and four sizes. All suitcases are lightweight, strong, and impact-resistant, which is good in a crowded airport. And 360-degree spinner wheels guarantee a smooth ride. Thanks to their lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, Away will fix or replace it. Try it for 100 days, and if at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund, no questions asked. If you're like me and can't stop scrolling Twitter, even when I'm supposed to be relaxing, the Away Carry-On comes with powered USB ports on a removable battery, so you don't have to worry about losing battery or losing track of the news when you're on the go. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com pre-20 and use promo code pre-20 during checkout. That's awaytravel.com pre-20 and use promo code pre-20 for $20 off a suitcase. Support for this episode comes from The New Yorker, the best writing in America today. The New Yorker is on the forefront of stories that range from international affairs to the highs and lows of today's culture, like Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Emily Nussbaum, the television critic for The New Yorker who writes about the latest and greatest shows, or John Cassidy, who covers politics and economics. He's written on topics ranging from the intelligence failures before the Iraq War to the economics of John Maynard Keynes. On Stay Tuned, we've brought New Yorker writers like Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer to discuss their thoughtful and thorough reporting. Now get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6. You'll also get their iconic tote bag, weekly home delivery of the print edition, and unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. Just go to newyorker.com slash preet and enter the code preet. For access to apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and more, that's newyorker.com slash preet and enter the code preet to save 50% on a 12-week subscription and get that New Yorker tote. Secretary Castro, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Good to be with you. I know you're very busy, uh, like your colleagues, who are all trying to become the next commander-in-chief, so I really do appreciate your taking the time to talk with me. Can I ask you, how do I know that this is Julian Castro and not your identical twin brother, Joaquin Castro? <laughs> it's easier for you to pull off because I should tell the listeners you're remote. You're in San Antonio, and I'm in New York. So that is
0: a good question. If we were here, he would say that I'm a minute uglier than he is. <laughs> but you can't see us. We actually sound pretty similar. You know, if you knew us well, you could probably tell us apart. But
1: have you used him to amplify your ability to be in different places?
0: <laughs> Not yet. Although I am using him in the campaign. He's the campaign chairman
1: but does he um, identify himself as Joaquin or he,
0: Oh of course yeah
1: I wonder if is that an FEC violation
0: You know this is the edge of FEC law here that probably would be
1: I think Bill Barr would say it's fine
0: Yeah I I'm I'm <laughs>
1: proud of uh, of the
0: work that Joaquin is doing you may have seen the other day for instance that he led a congressional delegation to the Clint detention facility I in did. El Paso yes. he caught that video of you know showing what's happening in there and so But I try and take his time and attention as much as I can uh, to help out with the campaign. Is he your closest advisor? For sure. And throughout my life, he's been my closest friend. And, uh, and in politics, you know, it's rare that you have a sibling and somebody who is your best friend who is doing the same thing that you do. And so it's wonderful to have somebody that understands politics and you know, can commiserate with me when See a poll that we may not like, or you think about the road ahead. That's been how it's been throughout my life. My brother and I grew up sleeping on bunk beds, and we went to college together, went to law school together, had our own little law went firm. Went to the same law firm, actually. Yeah, went home to the same <laughs> law
1: firm. Some other identical twins that I've known over my lifetime, they make it a point to go elsewhere, to go to different schools. You decide to be in the same place. Is that, that been a help? Yeah, couldn't get rid of him. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, what game of chance did you play to determine which of the two of you would run for president.
0: <laughs> well, I am one minute older, Preet. So, I you know, I see. my choice first. No, you know, we. I went into politics right when I got back from law school and started working at a law firm. And then he went in about a year, year and a half later. But his career, he has focused on being a legislator. He was in the Texas House of Representatives for 10 years, and now he's been in Congress three terms. This is his fourth term. You know, whereas I went into the San Antonio City Council and then I was mayor and then I was a cabinet secretary. And so my background, my experience is more an executive experience and his is more legislative experience. And you think people
1: with legislative experience would make less good president?
0: Well, I think that executive experience counts for something, for sure. Uh, That's one of the points that I make when I get out there in front of these crowds.
1: Can I ask you a question that you've been asked before? and give you another chance to answer it what is your favorite comfort food
0: <laughs> yeah i got so much flack for this i said iced tea was my favorite comfort yeah, you food did. you know i should have just said Wait, I'm sorry, like you said
1: iced tea was your favorite comfort food
0: that's right you know because i'm taking it literally like i i look for my iced tea the way that somebody looks for their coffee you
1: know you understand that iced tea is not food <laughs> Whether well, it gives you comfort or not. we're <laughs> stretching the definition
0: of food here. Uh, I should have just said something like cheese enchiladas or something, you know? Right. This Tex-Mex food that we have in San Antonio, which is also true. give you an
1: out. You could say, you know, that you misunderstood the question. You thought you were being asked, who is your favorite rapper from the 80s?
0: <laughs> that could have worked. That could have worked. I think you need better
1: crisis management
0: people. <laughs> <laughs> no, your I team. will say, it's always these lightning round little questions like that that— you know, I, I don't mind the policy questions, and all it's these little, it's like, ugh. It basically, they say, perform in two seconds. Like, give us a perfect answer in two seconds. Like, oh, I'd rather not.
1: Okay, so speaking of perform in two seconds, you mentioned at the outset your debate. I, I watched every minute of both evenings of debate, and I thought you did extremely well. I tweeted about it, and other people noticed as well. Before we get to why you did or did not do well, is that a silly exercise, having 10 people on stage, Uh, on two different nights? I mean,
0: it's... I see it as something to build on. That's definitely not the primary way that a voter should get his or her information because it's so artificial. You got one minute for answers. You got 45 seconds for a closing statement. As many issues as there are out there that are important to the lives of people, you only get to like six or seven of them during the course of two hours. So it's it's something to build upon and go and get more information from if you like a candidate. It's definitely not something that you should make your determination on in terms of who you're going to support just based on that. How
1: did you prepare for it? Did you have prepared points? And you obviously came in there knowing you were going to talk about immigration. It seemed like you went in there knowing that you would respond very directly to the other Texan in the race, Congressman Beto O'Rourke. How much of that is prepared and how much of that is spontaneous and how much should be spontaneous?
0: Well, I mean, we did prepare. And mostly I was prepared because you know there's certain issues that are going to come up. You know immigration is going to come up. You know health care is going to come up. So we could prepare for that. The other thing that you have to prepare for is there are nine other people on the stage, and you only have two hours. That means that you have to be willing to fight for your time. And I was concerned going in that the moderators might not hold people to their one minute. And, you know, this sounds very low level and just small, but the worst nightmare for a candidate is that you get 22 minutes into that debate and you still haven't really spoken. And you go through the whole debate and people really didn't hear from you. I mean, look what happened to Andrew Yang in the second night. I think he sent out a tweet or something almost apologizing to his supporters (laughs) for not having more time. Let Andrew speak. Yeah, and so, but that happens in part because of the number of questions that are directed from the moderators. It also happens because you need to be ready to jump in when you have an issue that you want to talk about and they've asked a question, but not necessarily to you. So we practiced all of
1: that. You were prepared with respect to some of those issues you mentioned because you knew they were going to come up. Do you think Vice President Biden was unprepared to answer some of the questions and issues put to him by Kamala Harris about the statements he made about United States senators who maybe did not have good views on race?
0: Well, I mean, I think at least if I read correctly, I think he has said that he probably wasn't as prepared as he could have been for, you know, that critique on the stage that night. I'm sure that he will be next time. But yeah, we're thinking through that for the second debate. I mean, you don't know when you have nine other people on the stage, what's going to come from what issue. You have to be ready not only to tell people what you're about, but also defend your own record. And sometimes when you have a genuine disagreement with somebody, make the contrast clear. And that's what I did the other day. You know, uh, Congressman O'Rourke and I have a genuine policy disagreement about whether we should repeal this law that essentially allows the Trump administration to incarcerate these parents and separate them from their little children.
1: Are you and Beto O'Rourke friends?
0: Uh, I think the word friend is overused in politics. Uh, We're (laughs) not super close. as You know, everybody in Congress is my friend this and my friend that. The Washington friend. I wouldn't say we're super close, but yeah, we're friendly. You know, my brother and I supported him, went on a road trip with him down in the Valley of Texas when he ran against Ted Cruz. Uh, I think that he's a great guy. The disagreement that we have is not based on personality. It's just based on a difference of opinion on that policy.
1: You're the only Latino candidate on the Democratic side, correct? That's right. Do you find that odd, given that there are about 40,000 people running? And and you're the only, do you find that that dispiriting? Or do you find that, is, is that good? Is that an advantage for you? Do you think about that at all? I mean,
0: I think it's disappointing because it's taken a long time for that kind of representation to happen on the Democratic side. Bill Richardson did run in 2008. And of course, on the Republican side, you had uh, Senator Rubio and Senator Cruz that ran. So I'm not the first Latino to run by any means, but there's still been too few, given the the number of Latinos and Latinas in the United
1: States. Do you think it's good or or odd that a number of your colleagues on the stage spoke, sometimes at length, to the audience in Spanish? You know, I think on balance,
0: it's good. On balance, it's good because, as I've, I've said to different folks, in my mother's generation, my grandmother's generation, I mean, people were punished for speaking Spanish in school. You know, little kids were, were punished for doing that. And basically, they're trying to beat the Spanish out of you. And today, we live in a country where kids like my daughter go to a bilingual program, Spanish and English, and so many other people, kids of different backgrounds, study a second language in school, and that's celebrated as something that is good to be able to speak a second language. So on balance, I actually see that as uh, progress, and it's something that, that we can be proud of. Right. Uh, now, I know that some people say, well, look, is that pandering? But, you know, I think on balance, it's a good thing.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I don't know that it's any more pandering than, than anything else, and being inclusive and suggesting to folks that it's okay to speak another language, especially my two cents <laughs> as the interviewer. Yeah, when you have an administration that's making a lot of people feel like they're not welcome, speaking Spanish may be a welcoming thing.
0: For sure. And I think in the years to come that you're going to have uh, candidates up there that are going to be able to speak to constituencies, and of course, in English, but also in different languages. And that's that's part of the beautiful progress of this country. You know, we continue to write a story of this country of being... More expansive when it comes to people of different backgrounds and offering more opportunity to everybody, uh, so I see that as a marker of progress, and I said that in my closing statement you know i I started it out with a line in Spanish, but said the fact that I can say that is a
1: mark of the progress we've made but you're not fluent in spanish how's your Spanish coming along uh
0: so so you know I understand it <laughs> pretty well i just yeah i'm not fluent in speaking it back, although as you can imagine these days i 'm getting a lot more practice, so it's getting you know better and better. Uh, it's just taking on some of these policy conversations in Spanish is still tough. And so that's what I got to kind of focus on.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting contrast. I'm an immigrant. My family's uh, family of immigrants from India. And we grew up in New Jersey. Uh, my parents encouraged us. They're probably going to listen to this and either be happy or disappointed. They kept trying to get my brother and me to learn how to speak Punjabi or Hindi, mm-hmm. you know, the two main languages that they spoke. And we, growing up as among the only Asian-Americans, Indian-Americans in the 70s, kind of rebelled against that. And so although we would not have been punished like you might have been for speaking Spanish in Texas, we, I think, chose poorly and didn't embrace. We wanted to be the ones who spoke English, English, English mm-hmm. only.
0: You know, and, and I think that there probably are a lot more kids out there of, you know, our kids' generation that that are choosing, whether it's uh, Hindi or Spanish or other languages, they're choosing to hold on to that and to study it. and And I think that's a great thing. That they're able to do that and that it's celebrated. So you, you went to a lot of great schools.
1: You did well in high school, and then you and your twin brother went to Stanford. Uh, this is all stuff you've said publicly, and I find it kind of extraordinary and more candid than most people are. Uh, how'd you do in your SATs?
0: Yeah, so uh, I said, I think I got something like a 1210. This is when it was scaled 1600. I don't know what, I think it may be scaled that way again. Uh, New York Times Magazine writer asked me about that and asked me about affirmative action. And I was very straightforward because I think that if you're going to have a program like that in place, that you need to be able to defend it and the rationale for it. And so I said, you know, when I got in, I think my grades were as good as anybody else's out there that was applying in my extracurricular activities, but my SAT score was lower than the median matriculating student. And the point that I made, though, which he didn't write about, which I wish he had, was that by the time I graduated from Stanford, that my LSAT score was actually higher than the median Stanford student who was taking the LSAT. So the point that a larger point that I had made back then was that, look, Joaquin and I had grown up in these schools that were segregated, some of the poorest schools in in all of Texas. And then through that affirmative action program, I don't know for sure, but we may have been given an opportunity as part of it. But then when I was able to swim in those waters at Stanford with everybody else, just like everybody else. Four years later, when it was time to take that LSAT, I was actually able to do a lot better, uh, even than, than folks that had come from different backgrounds. And that that's the way that it should work, that that program was meant to give folks an opportunity to create diversity in ways that had not been before.
1: That sounds all right to me. And yet, people in your position, people like you, who actually have a platform and a microphone, seldom talk about it that way. They talk about the benefits of affirmative action for other people and like to say for themselves that maybe didn't have anything to do with it, and they run away with a little bit. I think you're right. I think it undermines people's confidence in affirmative action in the first place. I'm not sure that everyone is putting their money where their mouth is. So my question to you is, given your own experience and how it's worked out for you and your brother, how does that translate into policy going forward in your mind, especially if you become president?
0: Well, I think that there's still... An opportunity gap that exists out there for a lot of people, including because of the color of their skin. Uh, I don't think that's true for everybody. I do think that there are, of course, some families of color that are doing very well and have certain advantages. You know, I think my son and my daughter growing up with a lot more advantages than a lot of folks and certainly more advantages than I had growing up. But there is still a place to consider the struggles that one had to overcome, including struggles related to somebody's ethnic or racial background. There are also other struggles that should be considered, you know, if somebody has overcome a disability or other life experiences. So there's a place to round out these classes, whether at universities or other places, considering people's life experience and background. I don't think that we should just jettison
1: that. I, I want to spend a few minutes talking about your qualifications your personality. You you have been, I think you're self-described. And if I'm wrong about this, I apologize. But you're self-described as boring. Is that that your own description? (laughs) Self-described? Maybe not. Maybe it was someone else. I guess that might be better. I think it was Joaquin. I think it was Joaquin called you that. that. That sounds right. That sounds right. Measured. I think you've called yourself measured.
0: Yeah. You know, people have often described Joaquin and me as when it comes to politics especially is like overly cautious and they base that sometimes on you know that i didn't run for governor of texas or senator of texas and you're like i'll show you president yeah i mean i just (laughs) disagreed with that notion you know i i staked my whole mayoral tenure on a ballot initiative to raise taxes to expand high quality full-day pre-k in our city put that in front of the voters that had never been done before and if i had lost that vote Basically, I think that would have been the end of my tenure as mayor. Um, I jumped into politics when I was 26 years old, and I often tell this story on the campaign uh, stump. Then was working for a law firm, and that law firm got a client that wanted us to approve a land deal that I was against. But I had this issue that under the professional rules of conduct for lawyers in Texas— They do have professional rules, as you do know. Mm -hmm. I couldn't go against the interest of that client. So one day I just quit my job at the law firm so that I could go and vote against that deal on the city council uh, that they wanted. So I have taken a lot of risk uh, in politics. But I think just because of our temperament, because of the way that sometimes, you know, Joaquin and I come off as even-tempered, people assume that
1: we're not risk-takers. But being measured... It is not the opposite of charisma. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have been asked to give the 2012 DNC keynote speech if the president and others didn't think you had the ability to connect and be charismatic. Do you like that word, or is that another silly word that we use in our politics?
0: No, I mean, I'm fine with that word. I think that's right. I mean, that's why you saw the other night, you know, at the debate, right? Right after I got off the stage and we went to the spin room, as they call it, people are like, oh, where has that person been? I tell folks, when I'm out there you know, debating nine other people, of course it's not going to be the same as when you're talking to one person, you know, and it's just person to person or even as we're talking now. You know, when I need to be, I will connect with the American people in a powerful way. And I can easily do that and meet the meet the standard for whatever people want to call it, charismatic or captivating or whatever. But look, you know, when I'm just out here talking to folks. I don't, I don't need to be the biggest ego in the room. I don't need to be the loudest person in the room. Right. Um, you know, I'm going to try and be genuine and just be myself. And that doesn't mean like performing all the time when it's time to do that. People can see that I absolutely will.
1: I I think there's a little bit of a disconnect in what people want in some ways, at least I'm speaking for myself. People want the candidate who is forward facing when you're in front of the public or giving a big speech or debating to show a lot of passion to show a lot of enthusiasm, to be charismatic, to maybe be even heroic, be a great orator, uh, you know, a fighter, be able to fight back, do all those things, maybe be dramatic, maybe even on occasion when appropriate, depending on the story you're telling, be emotional, and all that is great. But then they want, at least I want, to know that when the leader is behind closed doors having a meeting, trying to figure out how to fix the economy, or how to deal with a foreign policy crisis or something else, you, you don't want that person to be on a roller coaster ride, or overly emotional, or overly passionate, You want them to be even keel and not quick to anger and have a a measured temperament, that word measured again. How would you describe how you make decisions? Because that's mostly what matters, not just what happens in the public. Are you quick to anger? Do you get worked up about policy issues behind closed doors? Yeah, I think just, first of all, a lot
0: of the folks that I've worked with have worked with me in more than one role whether it was from the mayor's office to HUD or HUD onto this campaign. And so I think that says a lot uh, in terms of people liking the way that I work with a team. My approach is respect for everybody. Also, you have to be smart enough to know that you're not necessarily the smartest person in the room, especially if you're dealing with policy subjects, that there are people around you that have worked on them and studied them a lot longer. You don't feel like you know more than all the generals? (laughs) No, I definitely don't. (laughs) Uh, So you have to be willing to take people's talents and the information and resources that they offer and to put that together. But then uh, what I do agree with is, look, people elect a leader and that leader needs to make the final decision based on his or her own judgment. And let me connect this to another part of the conversation right now in the campaign, which is to say that I think it's fair for people to consider the numeric age of somebody. You know whether they're 45 or 75. And I also think it's fair, definitely, for people to consider the experience that somebody has or lack of experience. But what I think the best way to assess a candidate and a potential leader is, is somebody's judgment. Doesn't matter whether you're 45 or 75. I mean, you can have a 45-year-old with excellent judgment and a 75-year-old with terrible judgment or vice versa. You could have somebody that's very experienced, but their judgment's not very good, or in important moments, their judgment's not good. Somebody that doesn't have that much experience, but they've demonstrated in the little experience that they do have fantastic judgment. So I think that that that's what folks should pay attention to. And I believe that I've set a good track record for judgment. Uh, That doesn't mean that I haven't made some mistakes, but I think I've demonstrated good judgment.
1: So which of your experiences do you think best has prepared you to become president?
0: Probably, if I had to pick one, I would say probably serving as mayor of a city because everybody is looking to you and you get a sense of uh, a community. In San Antonio is about a million and a half people, so it's not a small city. Obviously, it compared not compare to the population of the United States, but you get a sense of what it means to be in a role where people are looking to you for leadership to not only set the tone but to pursue policies that are gonna improve people's lives and also to work with other policymakers in the community to create a better community. That's fundamentally what you do as the president. You know, you're you're there to lead, uh, you set the tone for our country, you address issues that are gonna make sure that People's lives improve, whether it's improving health care or education or strengthening Social Security and Medicare and so forth. So I'd say, yeah, being mayor of the city of San Antonio. uh, And then right after that, of course, was HUD secretary.
1: Right. Can can I ask about the mayor job again? Because, I know, different cities have different forms of city government and there are are weak mayoral systems and there are strong mayoral systems. And I may have this wrong, but my understanding has been that San Antonio has a sort of a, a weak executive, a weak mayor system. Was being mayor of San Antonio during the time that you had that job, was that considered a full-time job?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the charter had not been changed since 1951. And so the job paid something like $50 a week. The year after I left, I left in 2014. In 2015, the voters actually voted in. Uh, They changed the charter so that they pay, I think, like $65,000 a year. The system that I was going through, though, didn't reflect the reality of the job, which was that you're definitely a full-time mayor. I mean, it's a city of a million and a half people, you know. Um, that charter was from but 1951. But how were the
1: responsibilities divided between the elected mayor and the city manager, for example?
0: Yeah, so it was a hybrid model. The mayor had a vote on the city council, set the agenda, and also was in charge of uh, hiring some of the departments like the city clerk, for instance, and had a role in the city attorneys hiring. And then the city manager hired a number of department heads, most of the department heads. But what that meant for the mayor, and I think this is, this is very relevant to Washington, D.C. today, what it meant is that if you were going to be effective, you need to be excellent in that political ecosystem I mean, think about how many times Mitch McConnell has frustrated what we wanted to get done as Democrats. What it meant for me was that I had to sharpen my skills of leading and setting the tone and pursuing policy, but also getting people to go along with what I wanted to do as the mayor. And so I essentially turned that office into the equivalent of a strong mayor system. And people have written that uh, and got big things done, like re-K for SA and uh, moving our local public utility, away from coal-fired plants and toward renewable energy, pursuing economic development in the city. You know, it it was a good training ground for the political ecosystem that I saw in Washington, D.C. later.
1: I want to talk about some of the issues. Uh, We can't get to all of them because we don't have seven hours. So immigration is something that you spent much of your time during the debate talking about. You have, uh, obviously, strong views about things. So there's multiple aspects to this. One is how you stem illegal immigration at the border and keep the country safe. The other is, which I want to talk about first, how you deal with what you already have in the country. And so I don't know what the latest number is, but 11 or 12 million undocumented folks in the country at one end of the extreme, you know, there there are people, I believe the president himself has suggested this, although to do this seems not not possible, deport them all. And on the other end, there's some version of path to citizenship what do you say as president you want to have happen over the coming years and on what conditions with respect to those, you know, 10, 11, 12 million undocumented folks in the country?
0: You know, with, with respect to the undocumented immigrants who are living here, as long as they haven't committed a serious crime, if you've committed a serious crime, then, then I don't believe that you should be put on a pathway to citizenship. But folks who have not committed a serious crime should be put on a pathway to citizenship. How long a pathway? Well, I mean, I think what they were considering, right, in that legislation from a few years ago, probably, as I recall, would have taken 13 years. I, I would hope that it can be sooner than that. We would work towards something sooner than that. That brings up another point, which is we need to fix our legal immigration system. It shouldn't take people years and years to be able to become citizens.
1: But So who should come, though? Is there any merit to the argument that we should admit people to the country who... Are most skilled and are most educated to contribute the most to the economy? What do you say to the people who say that?
0: Well, I I would say I agree that we should increase, for instance, H one B visas, that we should harness talent from around the world. At the same time, I disagree that that's the only lens that we should look at potential immigrants from. Uh, Yeah, all all of us have stories, you know, for people from different backgrounds. But my grandmother came here when she was seven years old as an orphan from Mexico, a little girl with almost nothing. There are plenty of families who, you know, they have the same story wherever they came from. And yet two generations later, one of her grandsons is the congressman for the community that she came to, San Antonio, and the other one is a candidate for president of the United States. So you know, people have potential, and families have potential and value beyond whether they have a PhD, or they're highly skilled in one area. The other thing I would challenge is what we consider skilled labor. I've said very clearly, I mean, if somebody wants to go try and work 12 hours in a field in California and see how long you can do that, or go work 12 hours in 102 degrees on a roof in Texas, and then call that non-skilled labor, it very much is skilled labor. Because if it wasn't, They would be able to find people that would be jumping to go do it. And so I challenge some of the underpinnings of what we consider skilled labor.
1: You're not one of the people who says the phrase, we should abolish ICE, correct? I haven't used that term, no. What do you think of that term? Well, I think that the term has,
0: uh, for better or worse, been co-opted by the right wing and used to scare people. I've said that we should break apart ICE. And in my vision for immigration in the future, we would do enforcement differently. How so? so? As you recall, about a year, year and a half ago, there were 19 employees of ICE that wrote a letter stating that ICE is not working the way that it should. And in fact, the way that it's set up is inhibiting the ability of the Homeland Security Investigations Unit to be able to do its job effectively. I would break up ICE and separate HSI from the enforcement arm, put most of that enforcement into the Department of Justice, and also ensure that we have a culture change when it comes to enforcement.
1: What What, what uh, is improved by, by putting that function, which remains relatively similar, under a different agency like DOJ?
0: Well, I believe, first of all, that that's going to reset how we do things. It gives you an opportunity to select new leadership, to retrain and change the culture of the agency. You know, I would also like to drill down and look at how enforcement is being done at a mechanical level. Uh, I've called for a different approach to enforcement, for instance, in inland areas in the country. As you know, they can go, uh, in terms of enforcement, up to 100 miles from a border. Yeah. And I've said that we should reduce that down to 25 miles.
1: So there are some ways that I think we can change enforcement in this country for the better. So you spent some time at the debate talking about this issue of what happens to folks who come to the border, present themselves, and you referred to a statute. And it's always music to my ears when, when a candidate talks about an actual statute, Section 1325, followed by 1326, both of which are, are known to people who have practiced law in this area, criminal and civil. In a nutshell, remind people what it is that you want to do and why that's a good yeah. idea.
0: Well, Section 1325 that I addressed uh, on the debate stage, Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act was passed in the 1920s, and it essentially criminalizes crossing the border without papers. But this is an important part from the late 1920s until about the early 2000s, in the vast majority of cases, border crossing was not treated as a criminal violation we never did it's still illegal (laughs) Yeah. yeah it's still illegal there's still it's still a civil violation and people are still subject to a court system and ultimately perhaps being deported it's just it's not treated as a as a crime what i've said is that because this administration has used section 1325 weaponized it to separate incarcerate migrant parents and separate them from their children And I want to guarantee that that kind of family separation doesn't happen in the future. That I would go back to the way we used to treat these things, which is as a civil violation
1: and not a criminal one. But you don't need a repeal of of Section 1325 for that. So, for example, I was a U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, as my listeners know. And we did, you know, a certain amount of immigration prosecutions. I, I don't remember ever prosecuting a single human being under 1325. The next statute is 1326, which makes it a crime not to simply enter, but to re-enter. And a subsection of that statute makes it a particular crime to re-enter after having been convicted of an aggravated felony in the United States. And those were the only cases that we prosecuted. So you were in the country illegally, you committed a crime, you were deported, and you came back anyway. And that was not a function of, you know, having some statutes on the books or not on the books. That was a function of good, sound, I think, public policy and exercise of discretion. Yeah. But here's the
0: thing, like, So let me be very clear.
1: I don't think that's enough i don't think that we
0: should rely on the prosecutorial discretion of some attorneys u.s attorneys in the southern district of new york or any other district i want to do everything that i can to make sure that nobody weaponizes that again so there's a difference there yeah i mean yeah i take your argument about prosecutorial discretion i'm saying very clearly
1: that that is not enough i don't want to rely on that in fairness the statute is important, but also culture and discretion is important because as some people pointed out. Oh yeah, but that's a different. bad intentions, if you take the statute away, bad people will still find a way to separate. Well, but
0: but I guess I would ask you, and obviously you're very knowledgeable on this. What is it that that statute gives you that you don't have if it's taken away? If for eighty years. Oh,
1: I have no problem with thirteen twenty-five. It being was hardly away. ever used. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, no, no. So that's the point. Yeah. But that's the thing. We cannot, on this moral issue say that we're going to leave it up to the discretion of U.S. attorneys. As you know, U.S. attorneys are, by and large, political appointees that we've seen in this Trump administration, a lot of them marching to the beat of the drummer of the president, right? So uh, that's why that night at the debate, I was so animated about this. Like, we're not going to leave it up to people's discretion. I do think that that there is opportunity for discretion in other contexts, Obviously, in the Obama administration, there was prosecutorial discretion that was exercised. But like, you know, I think a lot of people have had enough of when it comes to little children and their parents taking the chance that you're going to have a nice guy or a nice woman in that office. I'm not going to do that. I think that's bullshit. I'm not going to do it.
1: Let's talk about education for a minute. You and I have both, and our brothers, have benefited immensely from Education, higher education, my family's mantra always was, that's how you make something of yourself, that's how you survive in the world, and that's how you accomplish things, and that's also how you give back. Should we have a plan to forgive college debt in this country?
0: Oh, absolutely. All of it? My plan does not say that, no. How much of it? My plan is built on basically people who have gotten an education, who have paid for it, who are struggling to pay back those student loans. So the way my plan would work would be if you're making less than 250% of federal poverty level, your repayment would be zero. If you make over that, it would scale up to the most where you could pay back, you would be required to pay back, would be 10% of the income that you're making at any one time. And there would be a cap on the amount of interest that could accrue if you're not paying anything back if you go 20 years, which is the usual, uh, you know, for a lot of these loans, 10 years or 20 years, the the usual life of a loan, and whatever hasn't been paid back, that would be relieved.
1: How much is that going to cost?
0: Well, I mean, our whole education plan, I think, was uh, just
1: under a trillion dollars. That's a lot of zeros. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> Where does that come from?
0: Uh, So during the course of the campaign, we are going to release our plan for how we would pay for what I've proposed on education, on housing, on a number of other things. I give Senator Warren credit. You know, I talked to her the other day after the debate, and I told her, look, you put out your wealth tax, and uh, I think she had a new corporate tax. I like some of the ideas that she's put out there. And she has put out, which we will do too before anybody votes, because I think the American people deserve this okay, well, if you want to do X, Y, and Z, how are you going to pay for it? In general, though, I would say that the outlines of that are, obviously, we're going to repeal these Trump tax cuts and replace them with with something that works for people that have to work with the middle class and the working poor instead of very wealthy individuals and wealthy corporations. So we would redo our tax code. We would raise the top marginal tax rate, close loopholes and favorable treatment toward big corporations. We would raise the corporate tax rate again.
1: With Mitch McConnell running the Senate, you're going to do that?
0: Well, I mean, we're going to make a big push to do it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I take the point. Like, If Mitch McConnell is there,
0: all of this, but we can make that argument against anything that a Democratic president wants to do, right? Yeah. The other thing that I think we can do, which may be the most feasible and that we'll include in my tax plan, there are ways that we can be creative to get revenue for programs that we want that are not about increasing the tax rate on corporations or even wealthy individuals. For instance, I've suggested increasing what we give to the National Housing Trust Fund to build more housing that's affordable. The way that the National Housing Trust Fund is funded is through a transaction fee on the government-sponsored entities, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So every time they do a transaction, there's a little bit of money that goes into this National Housing Trust Fund. We can enlarge that transaction fee You know, obviously it has to be reasonable, but we can look for other ways like that to create revenue, to fund some of these initiatives for what I believe needs to be a 21st century safety net.
1: Here's an issue that is not quite a policy issue. It's more of a culture issue. And you've talked about culture, owning up to mistakes that you make. And this will sound quaint to some folks listening, given the current climate. But in 2016, when you were the secretary at HUD, you did an interview with Katie Couric, on Yahoo News, and the HUD seal was behind you uh, while you were doing the interview. And at one point, you said, now taking off my HUD hat for a second, obviously the seal remained behind you. And you said, just speaking individually, making it clear that you're about to say something not in your capacity as HUD secretary, although you're never not speaking in your capacity as HUD secretary, as the ethics rules suggest. You said, it is very clear that Hillary Clinton is the most experienced, thoughtful, and prepared candidate, et cetera, et cetera. And for that, a lot of people would say, fairly mild statement, with the caveat at the beginning You were called out by the special counsel's office, not the Mueller office, but the special counsel's office that enforces the Hatch Act, which a lot of people heard about for the first time because, among other people, Kellyanne Conway, counselor to the president, has been accused of violating the Hatch Act again and again and again and again and again. What did you do in response to that allegation by the special counsel's office?
0: Yeah, well, and you've described it well, you know, in 2016, In that interview, I thought at the time that making that disclaimer about you know I'm going to using my other hat and so forth that that was enough essentially to protect me against a Hatch Act violation. It turned out that that was not, and when our counsel at HUD pointed that out right away, I said, "Okay, well, you know, I'm going to admit my mistake, I'm admit my error," and uh, I did that, and we made sure that. I never made that mistake again. Here's what
1: you said. I think it's worth hearing. And I'm impressed by this. You said, thank you for bringing this matter to my attention. When an error is made, even an inadvertent one, the error should be acknowledged. Although it was not my intent, I made one here. The point to me is not that an error was made or not made, but that it was acknowledged. In contrast to something that I've talked a lot about on this show, you have Kellyanne Conway and other people who work in the White House who, when told about a violation by the Hatch enforcers, thumb their nose, don't respond, attack them, and then say the law is very stupid without trying to work out some accommodation. What are you going to do to make sure that people care about the rules and they care about ethics in the White House again?
0: then no, that's a great question. And I would say also that, you know, there's something larger at play here, which is that as a leader, you have to be willing to, just like every leader wants to take, you know, the glory of success, you have to be willing to admit when you've made a mistake and we're living through this time period and especially with this president where the whole game is don't ever admit that you're wrong don't ever seem fallible you know don't ever admit that you've made a mistake part of being a strong leader and of getting stronger and growing as a leader is being able to recognize when you've made a mistake and to take appropriate action which is what we did there you also think back through our history i mean look at uh, watergate nixon could never go backward could never admit and now of course people can imagine why but could never admit a mistake, or the Iraq war. There were different points where different decisions could have been made even after that first mistake of going in, but that didn't happen. And then you draw a straight line to this president, the mistakes that this administration has made, whether it's these impromptu, unprepared summits with Kim Jong-un or the attitude of Kellyanne Conway, which is, instead of just admitting, okay, look, I made this mistake, I'm not going to do it again, she flagrantly goes out and intentionally continues to violate it, which is why the Office of Special Counsel had to come and say she should be removed from federal employment, which was unprecedented. So just as a caveat there, I mean, you got to be big enough to admit when you're wrong, just like you like taking credit when you're right, if you're a leader. I agree. For me, throughout my career, I have tried to improve The ethics and the kind of conduct of whatever body I've been a part of, when I was a city councilman, I was the one that introduced uh, campaign finance reform to San Antonio for the first time, and we implemented it. When I was mayor, one of the first things that we did was we strengthened our ethics code so that lobbyists could have less influence at City Hall. And if I'm president, I look forward, and in the campaign, we're going to release policy on this too. I look forward to strengthening disclosure requirements, implementing the kind of practices that the Obama administration did, you know, that you can't serve in the administration and then turn right around and
1: right. be a lobbyist. Yeah, look, I, I, would, I would offer respectfully that you also lead by example. Now, the rules are one thing, but the, oh, of course. Yeah. You know, if you have a leader who says, I'm not going to engage in this conduct or this behavior, that matters a lot too.
0: Absolutely, and I think President Obama showed that.
1: You know, uh, I think he showed that. I think so many
0: others, yourself included, and in others serving in other posts have shown that. Uh, and the next president needs to show that as well, because this president certainly has dropped the ball there.
1: I want to talk about policing for a minute. There's a lot of tension between communities and police departments around the country. Lots of folks who have been observing the race have said that you have put forward perhaps the most comprehensive, detailed plan for reforming policing in the country. And a lot of the things I think in the plan sound great. Others I might have some disagreement with. And 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 by the way, they've gotten a lot of uh, praise from you know, reform-minded groups and from liberal entities, and that's all well and good. For any of those things to be effective and to work, based on my experience with law enforcement, there has to be buy-in at some level from the police departments, from law enforcement, from the cops. How do you propose to get buy-in for some of your more controversial or more dramatic proposals from the people who you hope to reform?
0: Well, I would start by approaching law enforcement in the spirit of tremendous respect, And understanding that they do a job that uh, helps keep our country safer, that all of us owe them a debt of gratitude for, and they understand their job better than we understand their job. Working with police chiefs and others in law enforcement that have shown that they're innovators and have done some of these things in their own police departments, because there are examples of that, trying to harness a coalition of those folks to help do outreach because I do think that, at least having been a mayor in my experience, folks in law enforcement respect the opinion and perspective of others who have done the same job, who have put their lives on the line. Fortunately, there are folks out there who agree that we need to increase transparency and accountability. And I would seek to utilize their help in doing this as much as possible. Working with mayors and governors because there are a lot of mayors and some governors that agree on policy that needs to be changed. And ultimately, it really is, especially at the local level, it's those mayors and those city council members, as well as county supervisors and county commissioners that make a difference. On top of that, we would also use a carrot and stick approach, which is to say to tie federal funding to whether a department adopts an acceptable use of force standard. And then incentivize them with Department of Justice funding, whether it's the COPS grants or other grants that we do.
1: And you actually propose to change federal statute with respect to the standard of deference owed to law enforcement officials when they engage in uh, force.
0: That's right. Uh, So that lethal force would only be used where all other reasonable alternatives have been exhausted. And as you may know, you probably know, in California, they just passed legislation that is similar, and, you know, hoping that the governor over there will sign that legislation.
1: Can I ask you some um, lightning round questions? Because I know you love them so much, because we're, <laughs> yeah. we're running it. Okay, um, do you believe that the U.S. should consider making reparations to the African-American community?
0: I absolutely do. And, uh, and I support Sheila Jackson Lee's legislation in Congress to appoint a commission that would make a recommendation to the president on that.
1: Mr. Secretary, are you woke? I think so. Yeah, whether
0: somebody's woke is something that other people got to judge, but I think so. What does that mean? You know, I always see that as, look, do you recognize the struggles of other folks, you know? Do you think beyond yourself and recognize what everybody needs to be able to, to get on in
1: this country? Do you believe that the Supreme Court should have term limits imposed on justices? I'm open to that,
0: yeah. I don't agree with packing the court, but I'm open to term limits, yeah.
1: Do you pledge not to pardon Donald Trump? either in advance of a potential charge that might be brought against him or after a prosecution and conviction?
0: I would not pardon him. And I know there's disagreement over Gerald Ford's pardon of Nixon, arguments on both sides of that, but I, I would not do that because it would send a message to a future president that they can do whatever they want and just get a pardon in the end.
1: Would you consider, like Donald Trump did, putting forward you know a non-exhaustive list of potential Supreme Court nominees
0: I think the operative word there is non-exhaustive. Sure, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't see a problem with. Look, that.
1: a lot of people thought that's how Donald Trump helped get elected. People had qualms about him in his own party, and he put out a Federal Society vetted and blessed list. And maybe on the other side, people are not quite as focused on that. But I, I've often wondered why it is that that's so effective on the Republican side and not so much on the Democratic side.
0: I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of that we do need to be paying more attention to that. And I do think that with Roe v. Wade under threat because of the composition of today's court, that more Democrats and more certainly more progressives are focused on the fate of the court and what we're going to do in terms of justices in the future. So, yeah, but in terms of a list, I don't see any problem with that. What I do see a problem with is... Only listening to one group or xing out the ability of the American Bar Association, for instance, to make a recommendation or vet these candidates, I think I would return the American Bar Association's role in the process.
1: What does patriotism mean to you? That
0: love of country. Also, the ability to recognize both the beauty and the shortcomings of the country and to do something about it. I think true patriotism is actually, whether it's just voting or other ways, like doing something to move the country forward.
1: Another very broad, easy question. What's your definition of justice? I think
0: uh, fairness, a balance of how somebody is treated out there.
1: Do you believe that a sitting president should be able to be indicted?
0: I do. I do. Now, what the outlines of that are, for which crimes exactly,
1: but yes, I do. I do. Will you undertake any action as the president to revise or review the Office of Legal Counsel opinion that says that a sitting president cannot be indicted?
0: I absolutely would, because that's the basis that uh, folks are using right now not to indict a president, obviously, as we saw in the Mueller report.
1: I think I'm out of lightning round questions. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for being with us. Congratulations on your success. I look forward to watching you in the upcoming debates. And depending on how things are going, maybe we'll have you back. Okay. Good luck. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, sir. Take care. Bye. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. Join me in this special bonus, where Julian told me about his Iowa strategy, the Mitch McConnell effect, and his favorite godfather. He chose the right one. To get that and the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, sign up today at cafe.com slash insider.
0: Had both Robert De Niro and <laughs> Al, Pacino, uh, Al Pacino. So did Heat. Yeah, but they were old. <laughs> they were young back then.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Julian Castro. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the CAFE team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara, stay tuned. Hey folks, CAFE recently launched something to help you keep on top of today's news cycle. It's a newsletter that recaps news and analysis of politically charged legal matters, the Cafe Brief. Sign up to stay informed at cafe.com/slash brief. That's cafe.com/slash brief. Simply Safe is the home security for right now when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com Preet and get free shipping and a 60 day money back guarantee.